You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Melissa Carney, who is professor of economics at the University of Maryland. I think you're also affiliated with the Brookings Institute. Is that right? Yeah, and and Aspen Economic Strategy Group. And also the author of this book called The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Melissa, I mean, this is, I guess, in the domain of family economics. And, you know, I don't think we have, I have not seen in any of the economics departments that I've been affiliated with sort of family economics workshops and seminars, but we spend an awful lot of time with our families. It's a huge part of economic life. And I think going back to Gary Becker, people have been studying these issues, but it's still kind of a fringe area of economics, notwithstanding the fact that Claudia Golden just won the Nobel Prize, right? But why do you suppose it is that economists have not spent nearly as much time studying this very important institution, this unit of production relative to others? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I think it's a bit of a miss for the economics profession in the sense that the household and family really is the fundamental economic unit, the fundamental unit of society. Our tax code and our policies actually treat the family as such. And so it is a bit curious that economists don't focus on it as much or as deliberately as as we might or we should. The fact that Becker worked on this topic, I think, makes it a little bit more serious. There is a tendency of some economists to dismiss this kind of work as too much sociology. But I will say sociologists often bristle at the way economists approach these problems. So those of us who work on this in economics are a little bit stuck between a rock and a hard place. But actually... I came at this book as a labor economist and someone and a public finance economist and someone who's been studying like poverty and inequality and the way people respond to government programs. And so it's sort of interesting because, of course, the book draws on a lot of what we would think of as household economics. But actually, what brought me to it is, hey, we can't keep looking at all of these outcomes and inequality without looking at the family. Well, look, a lot of economists are interested in inequality. They're interested in, in poverty, in trying to figure out what's driving it. And, and in particular, what's driving sort of its, its, its persistence, right? Or its heritability. And so there's been a lot of attention by Raj Chetty and others on geographic variables. And you're focusing really on, on family structure. And you've observed that over the last couple of decades, we've been running this massive experiment, right, you call it. And the experiment is the rise of the a single-parent household. And we can talk about why that is. But before we jump into kind of why we're seeing this trend, maybe start by discussing why does it matter, right? Why should we care? It is so interestingly, when you look at all of the research that economists have done on poverty and inequality and social mobility, Family structure is so important and so determinant of all of that. And so what I'm really doing is not uncovering something that isn't there in all of the academic 
evidence. I just think it doesn't get the attention it deserves when we then say, so what should we do about inequality or threats to social mobility or poverty? We take family structure as a given in all of our research. And so it matters because it is so determinant. Even if we wish it were otherwise, it is so determinant. We just see that over and over again, that kids from one parent homes are less likely to, you know, graduate high school, graduate college, go on to achieve high earnings. It's really determinant of all of these markers of what we might think of as economic success. You mentioned Chetty and the Opportunity Insights work, the geographic mobility. When their first paper came out 10 years ago, mapping economic mobility across the country, and they showed certain areas had higher and others had lower rates of upward mobility, the single biggest correlate of rates of upward mobility or social mobility in an area was the share of two-parent households. That's something that, frankly, I don't think they've highlighted as much as maybe deserves to be highlighted, but it's certainly something that jumped out at me and, and was part of the crescendo of, gosh, we keep seeing this in all the individual work on poverty. We now see it in inequality, and now we see it at the neighborhood level, too. So that's why it matters. Now, are children more likely to become successful when they have two-parent households throughout history and across all, all geographies? Or is, is there something new, right? Is, is the gap becoming more pronounced in terms of its, its impact? So I wish I knew enough about all of history in all places. What I can tell you is much more narrowly focused in the U.S. over the past 40 years. It's actually the gaps and outcomes between kids from single parent households and married parents has, has somewhat surprisingly, I think, expanded. So it's actually become more important. That surprised me, actually, when I first came across that in the data. And I think the way to think about it is single moms, again, in the U.S., are, are less disadvantaged now than they used to be. They're more likely to be older. They're more likely to be highly educated. But married moms are even older and even more educated. And they and their husbands bring in even more money than they used to. Somewhat surprisingly, but concerningly, the gaps have actually grown. I don't know that I've seen a good comparison of over longer stretches of time. And I think part of that is because the just really large number and share of kids growing up outside a two-parent home is a pretty new phenomenon when you take a broader historical perspective. But in, in order to succeed in, in our economy, particularly the modern American economy, you need to have human capital, right? You need to have college education. And of course, you need to have certain social capital, right? Certain habits and personal characteristics. And perhaps those things weren't as important. So if having a two-family household is more likely to lead to those human capital characteristics, and they were less important in the past, maybe having a single-parent household in the past wasn't as harmful, perhaps, as it is today, relatively speaking. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's an appropriate way to think about it. Think of just college graduation, now, so many more people go to college than in the past. College is really important to labor market returns that grew up in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. It's the gap in what college-educated workers and everyone else earns remains high, even if it's still not growing. Employment rates, their gaps are high. That is more important. Achieving a college degree is more important than in the past. And we see that kids who grew up in two-parent homes are about twice as likely to graduate college. I think it's a reasonable way to think about it that over time, and perhaps in the U.S. as compared to other countries, the goalposts keep moving and making it harder and harder um, to achieve economic security and stability. 
And that's why I think the family structure, we don't just want to think about single moms, their kids being more likely to live in poverty. But I think the right way to think about it now is that the divergence in family structure between the college educated class and everybody else is perpetuating inequality. It's exacerbating inequality precisely because these gaps are really large. Yeah. What I find interesting is that this rise of the single family, single parent household is predominantly a a phenomenon of of the poor. Because I think in, in educated circles, people think, oh, people are just living more like Europeans with this progressive skepticism around traditional family values and so forth. But you point out that among the well-to-do, among college graduates, there really hasn't been this big drop-off in marriage rates. Yeah, I think the key fact here is that the decline in the share of kids living with married parents has really happened outside of the college-educated class, despite all of the thinking of, oh, just not being married is a progressive idea, progressive, higher-educated, et cetera. No, it's kids whose moms have a four-year college degree, 86% of them live in married parent homes as compared to 90% 40 years ago. So barely a drop-off, even though that group of moms who have college education is so much bigger. So in some sense, that's a big surprise, right? It's a less select group, as we would say in economic speak, and yet the drop-off is pretty small. But among kids whose moms have a high school degree, here's the big story that I think is underappreciated. In the past four years, the share of them living with married parents has fallen from 83% to 60%. So it's not even just the poor anymore. In the 80s, We saw a large rise in single motherhood among moms with less than a high school degree. That's still true. They have elevated rates of single motherhood. But the middle group, high school educated parents, they've in some sense converged downward. Now it's really the college educated that stands out, which is why I sometimes refer to having a two-parent or a married parent household is now it's a luxury good. It's another disproportionate advantage of an early advantaged group. It's also interesting, this idea of we're just living more European. That too, not only is it not true that it's the highly educated who are deciding to do it alone, that's just not true, but it's also not true that cohabitation in a European style has just replaced marriage in the U.S., right? And so this is interesting because when I've presented my work in this topic to economists and social scientists and demographers in Europe, they're like, oh, this is such an American puritanical way of thinking of this. Like, I'm not married, but they've lived with their partner for 30 years and raised their kids together in what would look like a marital union in the U.S. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, cohabitation does not look like that in general in the U.S. Cohabitation is much more fragile. And so the decline in marriage outside the college-educated class has really led to a reduction in the share of kids who have two parents in their household. Again, that's why the decline in marriage matters. If it were just that the parents were living together and all but essentially what looks like a committed union and they're not married legally, it shouldn't it wouldn't matter so much, but it matters precisely because that's not what's happening. Now, like economists are sometimes made fun of because of the way in which they they model these things. But you analogize the process of uh, bearing children and, and raising them, you say that this is like a production function, right? Where, where the output is the quality of the child, right? Let's say quality, meaning their 
ability to earn and succeed in life. And the inputs are provided by the, the, the different parents. When we look at it that way, why would having two parents work together to produce a child give you better results? Couldn't one parent, if they had access to sufficiently large amount of income make up for the absence of the other parent? Yeah. Yeah. First here, I have to give a shout out to my University of Chicago press editor, Chad Zimmerman, because, you know, I write this thing. I'm like, just think about raising kids, like, you know, the way a factory produces cars. He's like, I need to tone down that language a bit. That's going to be jarring to some people. But yeah, think about it as we put inputs into this process of raising kids, right? One of the key inputs here is love and nurturing and all of that. But you could think of it as like inputs, love, nurturing, supervision, spending, the things we spend our money on, safe housing in a neighborhood that has a good school, tutors, extracurricular activities, all those inputs we put into the kid are time. And then what do we get out of that process? Of course, we get children that we love and enjoy spending time with and hopefully are happy, well-adjusted adults. But we can also mark sort of the outcomes of child development in terms of do they graduate high school? Do they graduate college? Do they avoid poverty? When we think about the resources that go into this process of raising kids, there are so many things that parents do. And so one of the questions was, okay, well, now that single moms are higher educated and have higher income, maybe they can't, maybe we're not seeing these gaps in the output of the process. But again, it turns out that even though single moms are more resourced now than in their past, Two parents are just that much more resourced. Right now, just to ask the question the way an economist would say, okay, if you have two single parents raising two single kids, right, would you get lesser output than if you had, say, a couple raising two kids, right? That's Yeah, that's a good question. Now you're going to make me talk about economies of scale, right? So it's not necessarily linear. But we might think, and in fact, economists have studied this, and basically, if even if you take a two-parent family, if there's more kids, some of the kids get less education than if there's fewer kids. It does make sense to think of it a little bit as the ratio of parents and parental resources to the number of kids you're raising. So that's right. And so another way to think about that in plain English is, okay, a single parent raising one kid probably can invest more in that kid than a single parent raising three kids. And so we shouldn't be surprised to really see some gaps happen when there's even more kids or a higher kid-to-parent ratio. But this is why, again, as an economist, my, my earnest wish is this shouldn't be such a third-rail topic to talk about because nobody is blaming single parents for not doing an awesome job and putting in the hard work. But when there's a second parent in the house, there's more income coming in, there's more time coming in, there's more supervision, there's more bandwidth. And we see that all of that collective input yields better outcomes for kids. And even when we do things statistically to control for income, so say, okay, let me compare two households, one with one parent, one with two parent, they have the same level of income. You still see that the outcomes are better for kids with two parents. And I think that that shouldn't really surprise anybody who's raised kids, we do more than just spend money on our kids. And having a second parent to to spend time with the kid, to maybe even help with the decision-making, to take some of the stress off any one of us, it turns out to be very helpful to the household and the child. So to look at it through the economic lens, 
and to create this production function is not to limit the inputs to financial ones, right? To be clear, right? There are inputs that are financial, inputs that are basically time and things like love and attention and so forth. But just starting with the financial, it seems fairly obvious that if you have two parents cohabitating, then you only have to pay one rent as opposed to two rents, right? And so that should free up some financial resources at at the very least. And if you have everybody living as singles, that should, that presumably jacks up the housing prices because you have more demand for housing than you would otherwise. Yeah. If we just step back from it to the big picture, the increase in one parent households among, let's call them the middle class, people with a high school degree has absolutely, and in a way that I think is underappreciated, enhanced the economic insecurity of that group. So if you just forget about rent, right? If you just look at household earnings of households with a mom with a high school degree, those actually decreased over the past 40 years. If you look at two-parent households headed by someone with a high school degree, earnings went up a little bit because middle income earnings went up by a little bit. If you look at the earnings of single moms over this time period, they went up by a lot. But if you look at all households with a mom with a high school degree, household earnings went down. Why? Because they're 23 percentage points more likely to only have one adult. So earnings went down and now you're covering, you know, the rent or the mortgage or the utilities and all the stuff by yourself. Here's another important related point, which is, okay, well, there's a dad somewhere, isn't he could still be contributing income. It turns out only 25% of unpartnered mothers are receiving any child support And even among those who are receiving child support, the median amount is something like $4,000. So there might be all sorts of help coming in from the non-resident dad and others, but it's not making up the gaps. If it were, again, we wouldn't see the differences in outcomes for kids, right? So even when you recognize that single parents are doing all sorts of things to, to get by, not just relying on their own earnings, which another point here t- that's important to put on the table is if you look at the income composition of single mother households, about 80% of it is their own earnings. And I throw that out there to counter the stereotype that some people have that a majority of these moms are just getting by on cash welfare. They're not, right? They're not. Uh, cash welfare is very meager in this country and it constitutes a very small share of income coming into these single parent households. But exactly, there's only one earner in a household covering all the bills, even when they get help. One of the other things that I was wondering is it it seems like we've seen also a decline in alloparenting, right? So not only are there more single parent head of households, but it, it seems like they don't, there's no intergenerational support. There doesn't seem to be community support. Is, is that something that you think is is exacerbating the problem? So, you know, in 21st century America, a single mom didn't have the the aunts and uncles and, and grandparents and, and maybe neighbors who were willing to, to chip in to help out. This is really interesting. This is something that I think like sociologists and development psychologists have done a better job than economists spending time looking into. And so I certainly draw on that research. Really interestingly, one of the reasons why non-economists, social scientists bristle a little bit at what I'm doing is they're like, you're not accounting for all of these nuances in the way different families make it work. And that's true. I would say that's a feature, not a bug of what I'm doing. I'm looking at the 
big trends. And the big trend has been a rise in the share of kids living in one-parent households. And then we can say, okay, how many of those kids living with unpartnered moms have a grandparent in their house, have an aunt and uncle in their house? It turns out 67% of them don't. So it is a minority of these households that have another adult living in their household, which may or may not be, even in the even in the instances where they do, let's say a fifth of these single moms have their, their own mother living with them. How much of that is making up for the absence of a second parent is questionable, but it's not the case, again, that the extended family is largely swooping in. And I, and I keep having to emphasize this. If the gaps were fully being made up for with extended relatives or others, we wouldn't see such a gap in outcomes, right? And so the fact that we see such a large gap in kids' outcomes, even though single parents have all of these other mechanisms, that's illustrative of the fact that these other mechanisms are not making up for the gaps. Now, another thing I would say about this is it's almost, this gets back to something you pointed out at the beginning, which is like U.S. society is pretty hard and it's it's a pretty, uh, you know, winner take all society for better or worse. There are a few things that probably make this situation particularly bad in the U.S., not just our sort of hardcore capitalist society, but also the lack of extended families or, or villages that we might have in a different society. So all of those things combined to, I think, make the situation of single parents and their kids in the U.S. particularly disadvantaged. Now, these aggregate results are the product of choices made by individuals, right? So these parents are deciding to have children and deciding not to get married. And so what's driving those choices? Why not get married? Presumably the, they're doing cost-benefit analysis, right? And they're just deciding that the cost outweighs the benefit. So has the, the benefit to these individuals gone down or, or has the cost gone up, right? Why not get married? Yeah, obviously this is the big question. Here's the way I've come to think about this, looking at the data and the evidence and the patterns and what we're seeing. I think the answer is both changing economic realities and changing social norms. So let me tell you my full sweep of this story, and then we can dig in a little bit. In the 60s and 70s, we had massive social cultural revolutions. You already mentioned Claudia Golden. She's documented these really nicely. The 60s and 70s were a time where changes in gender norms, expectations about marriage, an erosion of shotgun marriage as a social norm, for better or worse, right? But all of these things happened. We basically saw marriage decline across the education income distribution. Then you go into the 80s and 90s, and what happens is the decline in marriage stalls out among the college-educated. It's almost as if they worked through the cultural, social, gender norm changes and stabilized. Yeah, yeah. and divorce rates went down. Divorce rates have been falling in the U.S., I think in large part because marriage is down. So the bar to get married has been raised, and so more of those unions are successful. So divorce is down, marriage stabilized for the college-educated class, kept plummeting for everybody else. What we know is that in the correspondence of trends across groups, like demographic groups, and I mean, you know, by education and race, ethnicity, groups that saw male earnings and employment fall, their marriage rates fell the most. Groups that saw the relative earnings of women to men rise more, their marriage rates fell more, okay? And groups for whom, you know, let's be clear, groups for whom women did really well, college-educated women did really well, their marriage rates did not fall. So this is not 
about feminist success in the labor market. It's not that the women who did particularly well stopped getting married. They continued getting married largely because they partner with men who are still very attractive economic partners. But the groups for whom men's economic stability, earnings, employment fell, it was almost like either they decided, hey, I don't want the burden of raising a family because my economic situation isn't great, or women looked at them and were like, it's hard enough to raise kids. Why do I want to have a guy in the house who's in and out of work or bringing in less than me? Anyways, in an economic predictive sense, we see that economic story carries through. And then we have some really compelling papers in economics that show these causal effects in communities, in places where non-college educated men lost jobs because of external shocks, increased trade competition, the adoption of industrial robots. We saw that marriage rates fell more in those places and the share of kids living in single mother homes increased by more in those places. I think economics is a big part of the story. It's not the whole story. One, men out of work have other challenges, right? And so it could be that it's not so much the woman just looks and says, you're out of work, but it's like, you're out of work and you've got these other issues and you're not a stable, trustworthy partner for me. Or again, maybe the man views himself that way. And it's also, it's not like people who were low income in the past didn't get married. So I do think there's this other role of the social paradigm has shifted. It's now much more acceptable um, for both men and women, frankly, to, to, to be raising kids on their own. Yeah, so this is like the unmarriageable men hypothesis, right? The, the William Julius Wilson. But it, I, I mean, I'd like to dig into that a little more because look, we've had poor people forever, right? And in other countries, they also had Chinese imports. They also had dislocation. They also had automation kick in, but that doesn't seem to render the men un unmarriageable. It seems unique to the people that were affected in this way in the United States. Why do you suppose that is? Yeah. So two things. One, this is more of a comment on like these trends that drove labor market inequality. A lot of other countries did a better job responding in a policy way so that the sort of disparate impacts on non-college educated or less educated men weren't as large in the U.S. But even conditional on that, actually, what you do see when you look at what's happened in other countries is their rates of single parenthood or kids living with one parent is still lower than in the U.S. But in fact, over the past 40 years for European countries that I could get data on, we actually do see this fanning out. We do see an increase in single parenthood driven by the less educated, which I, again, I think that's underappreciated and understudied, but it doesn't look like what's happening in the U.S. is actually unique in this regard. And I think this should be a little bit of a cautionary tale to some of these European countries who might be complacent about this. The second thing is I thought for a long time what we really needed to do to stall or turn around these trends was improve the economic outcomes of non-college educated men. I've come to think that is probably necessary, but it won't be sufficient. And this gets to the point of like, wait, but in previous times, even men who were in and out of work, they were still married in large numbers. And of course, I think in, in immigrant communities and um, among Asians, for instance, we, we we see very different results. So that would suggest there's something cultural maybe that, that's, that's driving it. Yeah, I'll come back to that. So my colleague Riley Wilson and I did this study a few years ago where we tested this reverse marriageable male hypothesis 
So one of the good things that's happened in an economic sense for non-college educated men in, in recent decades is fracking booms. So these local fracking booms, forget about North Dakota, which was a different situation because you had a whole bunch of migrant workers, but in communities throughout the country where there was the geological capacity for fracking, you saw an increase in not only jobs in oil extraction, but like local economic booms, right? Yeah, so it's a great natural experiment, right? Because this is totally random. Exactly. And so we confirm like, yes, this increased employment and earnings among non-college educated men and more so than for women. So you've got both the men become more marriageable and relative to women, they their economic situation becomes more attractive. But it turns out, not in opposition to what our hypothesis was, that did not lead to a reduction in an increase in marriage. And it did not lead to a re- reduction in the non-marital birth share. It did lead to an increase in births. So in these places where there was more income, people had kids. That is a finding that we economists have found in multiple different contexts. It turns out kids are normal goods. It's one of the things people like to spend their money on. Income comes in. But the surprising thing to us was whether or not parents are married, they had more kids in the same, roughly the same proportion. And so then we looked at a similar shock, which was the coal boom of the 1980s in very similar, 1970s and 80s in very similar rural Appalachian communities. And there what you see is when the coal boom happened, prices of coal went up, the earnings of non-college educated men went up, both absolute and relative to women, marriage went up, and there was a decrease in the non-marital birth share. This is really interesting because you have very similar shocks in different places, sort of 25, 30 years apart, and you get a different response. And and the way I think about that is it suggests that the way people respond to an economic shock is in part determined by the social environment. And we do see that in fracking boom towns where there was a higher share of non-marital births ex ante, the non-marital birth response is larger. And so it just underscores the role of social conventions in how economic forces play out. Then let's get to the immigrant example. The trends I was talking about, the decrease in male earnings or employment, the relative increase of women. When we look by education group, it doesn't look like non-college educated Asian men did particularly better than than white, black, or Hispanic men. But their marriage rates didn't fall off as much. And the rise in single parent households in the Asian American community didn't rise. And so I'm not an expert in Asian American culture or Asian culture, but this would be consistent with just a different social convention in that community such that the economic forces are not as determinant because the social commitment to two parent households is really strong. You alluded to status, right? And you know, status is a slippery thing. I don't, I don't know how you can measure it objectively, but it seems like income gaps and status gaps might be different, right? The people now who are relatively poor, they're no poorer than they were 30 years ago. Yeah, in absolute way. Yeah, but their status is lower because of the fact that relative to the other folks in the society, they're doing considerably worse. I think they're really, this is a really interesting line of research in economics that I, I haven't contributed to, but I read it with interest. There's a paper by Sarah McClanahan and Tara Watson from a number of years ago that looks at this issue of status and driving marriage rates. And basically, even controlling for a a man's absolute income, if he's lower in his peer group, he's less likely to be married. And that could be that, again, in his peer group, he's viewed as less desirable or he views himself as less desirable. 
again, if you'll allow me to slip into econ speak, we just observe the equilibrium. We observe whether people are married or not. I can't really tell you if it's being driven by the man or woman. My guess is it's some of both. But it, it is true that we see these relative status things do have some predictive power. Well, and, and the other thing is that your absolute amount of income is not the same as the stability of that that income, right? So the lack of reliability or stability or security leads to high levels of stress and anxiety. And I think you you, you, were, you talked about this. You talked about toxic stress and, and how it, it, it can impact your cognitive capacities, right? And your ability to make decisions and to be a good parent, right? And so this is driven by poverty, of course, but it's also driven by insecurity and other things. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, here I draw on I draw on evidence from outside economics. Behavioral economists have looked at this. People use slightly different definitions, whether they're development psychologists or behavioral economists. But the general pattern that comes up in study after study is that single parents have more toxic stress or high levels of stress in the household. And correspondingly, they're more likely to engage in what would be considered less nurturing parenting. They're more likely to spank their kids. I think it's really interesting. Some of the pushback I get is it's not marriage. It's the type of people such that even if these people were married, they still, their kids would have different outcomes. But the the folks who don't want to acknowledge that marriage or family structure matters, I don't think their argument is doing what they want it to do. Because if you really deconstruct what they're saying is, it's not that there's not a second parent in the household. It's that mom is probably innately less nurturing. And why? Why would that be our presumption? I see no evidence for that. I find it much more compelling to think that if you're the only person paying the bills and you have to choose between buying food for your kid or paying your heating bill, you know, it's pretty darn hard to be patient with your kid or to help them with their homework. And so I don't think we need these selection stories or unobserved trait stories to explain why we see higher levels of stress, lower rates of the kind of parenting that the development psychologists or the parenting books tell us we're supposed to be engaged in, in households where there's less economic security or just one parent as opposed to two. Yeah. I mean, one of the puzzling things that a lot of people have observed is that at least middle and upper class parents spend a lot more time actively parenting their children than they did you, you you grew up, I think, in, in the 80s. I, I grew up in the 70s. And I was a free-range kid, right? My, my parents, even though I had a mother who was not working, it, it was sort of benign neglect. Right? And now what we see is that not only do these middle and upper-class parents work more, but they also spend more time with, with their kids. And so they're not really substitutes, but compliments, Right. So it's not like, oh, if I work, I'm going to give my kids more money. So I'll spend less time with them. It's like, no, I'm going to spend more money on them and I'm going to to spend more time with them than the lower income parents. That's also uh, presumably a a, a choice to some degree. Is that a choice that's driven by constraints or, or beliefs? Right. Is it a failure to understand the, the ROI? Or is it, an, is it an accurate understanding of the, the ROI? Yeah, this is a great question. I have a paper in 2008 with Eric Hurst and, and um, John Green, and we document the difference in parental time with their kids by education. And it is a bit curious because you do have college-educated parents. They work more. The opportunity cost of their time is higher, and yet they still spend more time with their kids. And for the book, I did updated that and looked at a cut where, what about married parents? 
So you see married, higher educated parents spend the most time with their kids. I think of that as a relaxation of the constraint. If there's two parents, the married mom is less likely to work than the non-married mom. So she does have more time. With the education, what is higher educated moms in particular spend less time in leisure and spend less time in home production than non-college educated moms. And so then it's an interesting question. Do Are they more attuned to the idea that spending time with their kids has a positive return on investment? My kid is likely to do better in school if I read to them or help them with their homework. Do they like spending time with their kids more? The evidence I can find on this, looking at surveys, looking at the results from interventions, parenting interventions, what I read is you, I don't find evidence that these low-income or single moms don't understand that reading to their kid is an important. In the surveys you can find, they say they want to do all those things. But then at the end of the day, it's pretty hard to implement, right? There are real constraints on how you use your time, on your ability to just your bandwidth, the emotional bandwidth. And so I think the most compelling explanation based on my read of the evidence is that higher educated folks married parents, they have more resources that allow them to be the kind of parents that they want to be. And more economically constrained parents have fewer resources allowing them to be that. Again, there are theories out there and some anecdotal or qualitative studies from others that suggest people have different views on parenting. I don't find large-scale evidence in favor of that. Now, do, do we know what these men are doing, the ones who aren't working and aren't parenting? Obviously, some are incarcerated, right? But the ones that aren't in, incarcerated, do we have a time-use survey on, right? Yeah, we do. Nick Everstad at AI has looked at it. What are these not in the labor force men doing? They are not taking care of kids. They're not taking care of parents. This is where, you know, people are like, they're playing video games, but in the past, they might've been watching TV, it doesn't look like they're being very productive. This is frankly why I bristle at the response to the trends I'm talking about is saying like, these guys are losers. Let's just give single moms a lot more money. We should not be okay with a situation where this many men are sidelined from both work and family life. That's a normative statement of mine. We shouldn't be okay with that. You know, you could read those sort of statistics and time use data in two different ways. One could be like, well, these guys need to get their act together. Otherwise, we should just count them out. Or you can read them as what is going on with men and how can we do more to invest in them and help them? I was just reading about a program at a community college in New York that's basically the Fatherhood Academy and is trying, it's targeted at men aged 18 to 34 who are dads and is trying to help them get training and skills and jobs and give them parenting classes. That's what I think we need to be doing. And you've talked about a bunch of uh, RCTs on some of these interventions, right? With mixed results. Some of them seem to be more effective. You, you looked at things like Big Brother programs and what was the name of the other one? Dads on Duty, right? That one wasn't evaluated, but I think, so the Dads on Duty story, I just love this anecdote and it helped me think about actually in, in one of the Opportunity Insights papers by the Chetty team, what they find is for Black boys, the share of Black dads in a neighborhood is the single biggest predictor. So it doesn't even have to be your dad. It could be just your neighbor's dad. Conditional on whether you have dads in the house, okay? More Black dads in the neighborhood is has the largest predictive determination 
of a smaller black weight gap in adulthood. So that's a very specific way of saying what they find, but think about it as this way. More black dads in the neighborhood is really helpful to black boys. And so you read this paper and you're just like, wow. And it's not clear why is that. And then there was this story and it made the news rounds. Dads on duty in Shreveport, Louisiana. There was a school that was having a lot of issues with violence. All of these kids were getting in fights all the time. The school, it seemed like they couldn't get it under control. And then a bunch of dads, and this was like, at least in the stories and the depictions, African-American dads were like, we're going to be dads on duty. And they showed up at the school and they went to the school football games and they wore these t-shirts that said dads on duty. And they basically describe it as like, we're just here for these kids. A lot of these kids don't have dads in their houses. We're here to like walk with them in the halls, tell dad corny dad jokes, let them know we're here for them. And I was like, that is an illustration of why having dads around might be really helpful for kids. And so that has not been evaluated, but there are evaluations of like mentorship programs and in particular, like big brother, big sister. These mentorship programs are not very expensive because they rely on volunteers, but they seem to really help at-risk kids. I'm encouraged by those kinds of things as a way of saying these kids who don't you know, a lot of these kids growing up in single parent households, again, they're not just missing out on money. They're missing out on a second supportive adult, many of them. Programs that try and fill that gap, I think are part of the solution. Even if they're not addressing the underlying challenge, they're addressing the symptoms. You know, I'm all for scaling up and promoting those kinds of programs. Now, the vast majority of single parent households are led by a mother, but there are some that have fathers. I was wondering, are there, there are differences? And you also mentioned that the impact of a single parent household is relatively small with girls, but is very pronounced with boys. So what explains that kind of gender difference in, in impact? Is that with only with single parent households that are led by a mother? Is there an interaction there between the the, the gender of the, the single parent and the gender of the, the child? Yeah. So now about four-fifths of household or 80% of households, single-parent households are headed by moms. So I don't know if that's large or small compared to what people expect. Almost all of the research and evidence and literature has been on single-mother households because they've constituted the large share of single-parent households. That research has shown that boys in particular are disadvantaged, but I want to be careful. They're disadvantaged in ways that researchers can measure in data sets. So boys who are growing up in single mother homes are more likely than girls growing up in single parent homes, even like when they're from the same homes, brothers and sisters. So you control for all of the family environment, school environment, the neighborhood environment. Boys are more likely to get in trouble in school, get suspended, drop out of high school, not complete college. And so the absence of a dad in the house seems to be particularly bad for boys' education and economic crime involvement outcomes. I I think we have to be careful to say that's not that girls aren't affected, but they might be affected in different ways that don't derail their education or economic progress in the same way. We can't measure happiness very easily, right? (laughs) We can't measure happiness. We can't measure... Yeah, I, I actually, from development psychology, there's evidence that sort of boys are more likely to engage in externalizing behavior when there's challenges internally, right? They're more likely to bully, get in fights, these things that are going to get them in trouble in school. Girls are more likely to harm themselves internally. And so we, I just, I don't know studies of that or how we'd compare. 
I'm sure there's psychologists who have looked at this, but I don't know the evidence on that. Well, we don't have really good data. I mean, Sweden has great data. I think you could probably look at the life expectancies and other kinds of outcomes with the Swedish data because they have individual identifiers. But you also allude to the idea that step-parents, right? So there are households that have a, a single parent. There are households that have two parents, but they're not the biological parents and two parents that are biological parents. There seems to be a difference there. We were growing up as kids. If we got a really small portion of something, we would call it a stepmother portion. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I didn't. I never heard that. I don't think you're allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Disney still beats up on stepmoms. Yeah, yeah. The stepmother and Cinderella and so forth. But yeah, exactly. So this is interesting. So I again, I really take this resource-based framework to all of it. Thinking about step-parents moves us a little bit more towards relationships, which I think is really important. And again, I think it's a feature. Others think it's a bug that like I'm focusing on a pretty economic take lens on the whole thing. Folks who really look at how the different relationships matter. Basically, if you just empirically, what we see is like kids who live with, who grew up with two biological parents conditional on all sorts of things we can control for race, the mom's age at first birth, their income, all that. They do, they have the best outcomes. And then kids whose parents are divorced, they're sort of in the middle of the kids whose parents were continuously, biological parents were continuously married versus never married. That makes sense from a resource-based framework because kids whose parents were never married are less likely to have had two parents in the house ever. They're less likely to be getting income and be involved with the second parents. They have the lowest level in general of parental resources. Kids with step parents are somewhere in between because step parents can make up for a lot of the income loss and that's protective. But what I learned from, again, outside economics, so there are some economics papers on this, step parents generally don't invest in much as much in their kids as biological parents. This is your stepmom proportion. There's a paper in economics from a while ago showing that like, when kids live with their stepmom, they go to the doctor less, right? That's just like your stepmom doesn't take you to the doctor as much as your regular, as your biological mom would have. So there's things like that. But even more alarmingly, again, if we look at outlier cases or the really extreme cases, having step parents, and in the data, we often can't see if their step parents are just the mom's boyfriend. That's where you have really high incidences of abuse, physical or sexual. Even if you look at mortality, which is a very low probability event, it's much higher. So step parents are complicated. I can't just take a fully resource-based perspective and say, it doesn't matter who the extra parent is. Just get another person in the household. That's not true. And by the way, this is like one of these pushbacks I'm getting. I can't help it, but like the reaction to my book itself, I think has been really interesting. People are like, oh, well, if two parents are better than one, how about three parents? You're like, who's the third parent, right? Just some random third person or like a sexual partner of one of the parents? No, there's nothing in what I'm saying about two parents versus one parents that would necessarily suggest that getting a third adult in the household would have even an amplifying benefit. Two biological parents are pretty, historically, we have a lot of data on what that looks like for kids and it's very beneficial. Now, do you think that single parents don't understand or appreciate the impact of having the other parent in the household? Because look, it's hard to find a parent that doesn't care about their kid, right? Everybody cares about their kids. You tell a story about your talk to this cab driver. 
And I think you stopped short of saying, hey, you know, you're really harming your kid here, right? And I don't think it would, no one would react well. But do you think people just don't understand? I mean, perhaps if they understood it more, they'd be willing to maybe compromise on some other aspects of life satisfaction to get that result? Okay. I love this question. I ask myself this question all the time. Let me be clear to people listening. I don't attempt to answer this question in the book because the short answer is I don't know, but I think it's worth us pondering, right? One of the things I'm a little bit struck by, and again, I don't talk about this in the book because this is really just the kinds of things that circle around in my head that I don't, I, I can't say to evidence on, It strikes me of how many, at a personal level, women who I am friends with, college-educated women raising their kids in two-parent households, when they hit marital strife, which many married couples do, the conversation is there's such an emphasis on staying together for the sake of the kids, maybe even staying together until the kids leave the house. Like it just, again, this is just anecdotally, but there's a really strong convention. And then we just see in the data, if you just take the data for what it is, if it's revealed preference, that convention is not as strong outside the college-educated class. And I, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it might be the case. And again, anecdotally, this is why I tell the story of the cab driver in the book. He's showing me pictures of his kid. He clearly is really into her. He's excited about her. He's proud of her. He seems to like the mom just fine. They just don't live together because maybe they'll get married someday. It just doesn't seem like a priority. I wonder how generalizable that is, right? There are clearly lots of single parents outside the college-educated class who would love to make things work, and it doesn't work with their kid's parent, right? And I'm certainly not suggesting that everyone should give it a try for the sake of the kids if there's, like, a harmful situation. But whether parents, some parents are a bit too optimistic about how it will work out or how easy it will be, not that it's easy, but how much harder it would be maybe with a second parent, I don't know. But I think that's an interesting question. The other thing I think is really important though on this is there are the programs, the voluntary sort of healthy relationship programs that the government has funded, that social scientists like me, and I was one of them poo-pooed for a really long time because they didn't lead to an increase in healthy marriages or relationships. I think it's quite striking that so many low-income couples avail themselves of these programs and they want to make their relationships work, they aren't able to. And then what you read in the qualitative work on this stuff, and Sarah Halpern Meekin has done really nice work interviewing a lot of these couples, they want to make it work. There's other barriers in many cases. Many of them didn't grow up in two-parent homes. It's not just letting them know how important it is. It's also like trying to figure out what the barriers are But the fact that we don't see widespread rejection of marriage in survey evidence or in these programs, it's more just like people don't know how to make it work or they really can't. And I think that's, you know, again, we should take that as a policy challenge. You recount one uh, story in in the book about how MTV had this show about teen moms, and it seemed to actually show up in the data as with lower teen birth rates. As an economist, you must have been like, wait, no, that can't be right. <laughs> you know, like TV show. I know. I mean, there's like a theme here of like, I keep writing these papers where my hypothesis is wrong. Okay. So 
there's a few things to take from this, but one point on the data, teen pregnancy is way down. Teen births are way down now. They're 70% lower than in the 90s, which is actually just important descriptively to keep in mind because, again, the rise in single parent households is not because teen births are up. They're down. But the interesting lesson I take from the MTV study is that social messaging matters, right? So what we found in the MTV paper, and this was work with Phil Levine, Team burst was falling, and then all of a sudden, one year, it dropped a ton. And Phil and I were getting calls from journalists because we had studied teen childbearing, and we are like, we don't know what it is, but it's not unemployment, it's not sex ed, it's not expanded access to contraception. Nothing like that happened this year. And then I was talking to Sarah Brown, who at the time ran the national campaign to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy. She's like, we think it's the MTV effect. Phil and I were like, no way. Of course, we had never watched the show. So then we watched the show, and we are like, Oh, this really does make teen childbearing look really hard. And we've written all these papers about how, like, girls needed more opportunities, education, employment. That would affect their cost-benefit. So we got the data on the show. Basically, places where more kids were watching or more teens were watching MTV in the pre-period, when the show came on, you see a discrete difference. Their birth, teen birth rates fell by more. And you see, then we got Google and Twitter data, you see a spike in people searching for how to get birth control. You see a spike in tweets that mention the show and birth control in the same tweet. It really seemed to just speak to teenagers where they were. Not, oh, this is going to make it harder for you to graduate college. It was like, you're going to get fat. You're going to be uncomfortable. Your boyfriend's probably not going to stick around. Your friends are going to go out and you're not. Like, it's sort of really interesting. MTV did not make this show as a cautionary tale to teenagers. They made it wondering if it would be entertaining. It was entertaining. People tuned in and it affects their thinking and ultimately behaviors. Yeah, and that's crazy. Now, at the beginning of the book, you, you talk about how difficult it is to talk about things like this, not just in the general public, but also even in academic circles. And I, I think it seems like we have a problem d- discussing these things w- without people thinking, oh, you're, you're blaming or shaming. How can we do that? How can we make claims, say, hey, listen, this is cause, this is effect, these are the results without implying some kind of moral valence? Because that seems to be what the reason why people don't want to talk about this is because they think that it implies some kind of moral blame or shame. I mean, I teach MBA students and you couldn't bring this up in in the classroom, in a typical MBA classroom, because they would think that, that you're some kind of a social conservative. Yes. Exactly. I steal myself to do it anyway for two reasons. One, the data is so strong and the evidence is so strong. And like, how could we call ourselves scholars if we just bury that finding over and over and think we're going to raise the EITC our way out of inequality? There are major class gaps. Family structure is a driver of it. I'm 100% convinced of this. And so I felt like people could call me names, but It's just like, you can't refute this in the data. The second, I think it's such a problem that certain topics now, we censor ourselves in the classroom. I know this, I experienced this. I think, you know, it's not just the reaction I've got from certain writers, but even the schools that have invited me to give talks on the book. On the one hand, I'm really grateful for the invitations I've gotten, but it's also a little bit like, huh, I've gotten way more invitations from schools in red states than blue states. Like, it's a little bit disappointing that this is not the right narrative right now. And as somebody who, one, I know in my heart of hearts, I believe in truth and scholarship and saying what's accurate. 
And two, I have nothing but empathy for these parents and their kids. And so I just, that's how I steal myself for this. But I'm just really motivated by like, we're really not going to close class and racial gaps in kids' outcomes, their school performance, their ultimate economic success in life if we don't invest in families. And so I just couldn't go another 20 years talking about, you know, improvements to the safety net or progressive tax reform without trying to put this on the policy agenda. Well, the word economics comes from what management of household, right? So will we see at the AEA, you know, a a major new category, household economics? Will we have workshops and seminars along with our IO and our labor econ and our uh, game theory workshops? And So there... There's an awesome Society of Household Economists. It's run by somebody from LSE, brings scholars together from all sorts of different countries. I'm going next week to the Population Economics Conference run by Bocconi, where people are talking about the decline in fertility, changing in household structures. There's a whole bunch of people working on this. Hopefully, it'll become less niche in the next 10 years. Well, Melissa, thank you so much. If it does become less niche, I think you'll be playing a major part in solving that. The book is called Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.